We went to all of them. The essence of what the strategy is going to be was high on vision, high on inspiration. It was such a strong message to go out with, with a clear sense of purpose that I think, you know, my advice would be however hard it is to do, the prize at the end of it is worth it to be able to sort of set a really clear inspirational tone to the, to the organisation. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to the Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Joe Farmer and Rich Miskella, joint managing partners of law firm Lewis Silken. They describe how the firm developed a fiercely different culture that allows them to deliver distinctively high-quality work for clients, and they also discuss the underlying logic of the strategic choices they've made. Well, Joe, Rich, thank you very much uh, for joining us here on The Purposeful Strategist. Uh, Maybe just to kind of ease us into the conversation, you could each say a little bit about yourself and between the two of you describe a bit about Lewis Silken. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm Joe Farmer. I've been a partner at Lewis Silken for almost 20 years now. So I recently became one of the joint managing partners. So that's in the last six months. Before that, I've been specialising in advertising and marketing and IP law. Yeah, and Lewis Silken, what is it? It's a law firm all around uh, GB in Ireland with eight offices, including one in Hong Kong. We're really well known for employment work and for the IP and media work that we do. And we're pretty specialist at what we do. And yeah, I'll hand over to Rich at that point. Great. Rich? I'm Rich Muscala. I'm the other joint managing partner. I've been at Lewis Silken for 21 years and I'm an employment lawyer. And so I run the employment team as well. We are very well known for the things that we invest heavily in. So we don't try and be all things to all people. That's great. A question I suspect might be in some listeners' minds is, so you're joint managing partners. That's not an absolutely unique thing in law firms, but it is a bit unusual to have two sort of people at the top. How does that work? Well, we couldn't find anyone good enough to do it on their own. (laughs) not really (laughs) we like it because it's one of the ways that we can show that we're distinctive we like to as much as possible to be kind of fiercely different and distinctive and we don't like the idea of the tournament model where people have to try and step on each other's faces to get to the top and it's a battle to get that we like to set a more collaborative tone two heads are better than one you know we're checks and balances on each other we encourage each other where necessary and steer a better course, I think. Yeah. The strategic genesis of the idea of having joint management partners came from recognition of, you know, we've got two quite distinct parts of the firm, the employment part and the IP and media and creative part. And it made sense from a strategic sense to make sure that you've got voices that really understand those constituent parts. And that was six or seven years ago that we made that decision as a firm to have joint managing partners. But now... Actually, it's a much more cohesive story and the strategy aligns all of the firm rather than it being this kind of divisional focus. I think we've just learned that two heads, if you've got the right heads, are better than one. It means 
less lonely decision making that you're kind of in a vacuum trying to come up with the answers and we just hope that it means a better thought through process yeah the, the other thing is i think having two joint managing partners who are embedded in different groups means you can actually move faster sometimes because you can bring into the decision making a really good detailed knowledge of what the partnership is thinking what their ambitions are, their aspirations, what they'll put up with, frankly, sometimes. <laughs> so hopefully you can move quicker when you get that right. To some extent, building on what you've said already, it really visibly shows the sense of partnership and collaboration all the way at the top of the organization, rather than down here, we've got to collaborate, but up there, they've boxed it out until one of them won. Um, yeah, no, I think it's a great cultural message. Exactly, yeah. One of the things I'm going to ask you about, and you might be too modest to talk about unprompted, but recently you've had a fair amount of recognition from a number of different angles for the different way you're running the firm, the different kind of firm you're not only trying to be, but actually are. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, just this week we were mentioned in The Lawyer, you know, the legal press, about what's, I guess, quite noteworthy to other law firms. It's not that noteworthy to us because we've lived with it for such a long time. But of course, lawyers do time recording. And during the pandemic, we introduced a time recording code for kindness. So the idea that we were giving permission to people to take time away, and, and this doesn't mean like the pro bono work, we've got separate kind of initiatives for that. It was genuinely about saying to people, you've got permission to take time out, whether it's for yourself to get away from the screen, go and do your neighbour's shopping, go call it grandma was the example that the lawyer gave. And, you know, we talk a lot about being brave and kind is a big part of our experience. So the kindness comes part of it. It's quite unusual for a law firm to do something like that. So that's why the lawyer picked up on it. Um, it's had a bit of traction to kind of go, wow, that's an unusual thing for a law firm to do. Yeah, we like being a bit different, to be honest. It's got to be there for a purpose, such as something rather than just being quirky for the sake of it. But we think we exist really to sort of challenge some of the norms of what it means to be a law firm. But revering kindness alongside the quality of what we offer is really at the heart of what we're trying to do. Also, we had some good news this week about the Newsweek's top 100 most loved workplaces. And we came in number four, which we're delighted about, suggests that we're getting some things right some of the time. Yeah, that's really astounding, isn't it? Really, really pleased. Yeah. Yeah, that's a vindication of, of what we're trying to do about being distinctive, as Joe says. You know, we want to have that mix of quality and culture that can really provide something genuinely different to our clients and for our people. Yeah. Um, I guess that takes us a little bit into the questions of purpose and strategy. It'd be interesting to hear, you know, how you think about both of those, but then also to hear a bit about how you've developed them. You know, how did it all come about? How long did it take? Those sorts of things. Sure. Well, if, if we tackle purpose, um, you know, I've been at the firm 21 years, joined as a junior lawyer, and immediately was aware that there was a sense that we were a purposeful organization. So the roots of this go back a really long way. About 35 years ago, two guys who are partners in our team were another firm and they were miserable at this other firm and they wrote a manifesto of what would the perfect law firm look like and it had 35 articles in it and we've got a copy of it and we go back to it occasionally and we've sort of enacted about 28 of the articles <laughs> and one of those guys was James Davis who was joint managing partner before me you know quite a visionary guy 
with his mate Russell Brimlow, who used to run our Oxford office. He saw that Lewis Hilkin already had in place a lot of the things that they wanted, which was very much about self-expression, authenticity, quality, you know, very tailored, bespoke way of providing advice and engaging the clients, trying to take out as many of the friction points in the, the legal work both between clients and as individuals as possible and to emphasize the fun, interesting bits, doing stuff you actually enjoy. Don't waste your life trying to do things you don't enjoy just for the money. And so then they added to that when they came. They're still here helping us stay honest to it, but we never really boiled that down and distilled it until quite recently. You said there were 35 kind of articles and you've gone with 28. What happened to the other seven? Are they still to come or...? They just weren't really applicable. (laughs) This was done in the 80s. You know, some of it was, we don't want to wear suits and ties. So it's like, you know, wow, big deal. (laughs) It's irrelevant. But but a, a lot of it was about, you know, respecting people as individuals, unique people, not wanting them to take on an institutional voice, bringing out their personal voice. Uh, allowing them to be distinctive and believing that that would be advantageous for clients, that if you could bring your whole self to your work, which is quite a, a, you know, an interesting thing to have been thinking about in the 80s. About 20 years ago, when um, you know, the right to request flexible working came out, you didn't have the right to actually work flexibly, only to request it. James and Russell, as another senior leader in the firm, you know, pushed through a thing that just said, look, anybody who wants to work four days a week for any reason whatsoever, prescribed, not prescribed, doesn't matter. You can just elect to do it. And so we've always had this sense that we were more flexible, more kind to our people than most law firms. I know there are other law firms out there that are good at this too. But, you know, as the market moves, as we get more flexible, you have to continue to really drill down on, OK, well, that's the principle, but we can't rest on our laurels. We have to work harder and harder and harder in order to maintain something distinctive and something that's genuinely not on offer elsewhere in the market. So that's really what Joe and I have been working on recently. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it sounds like a mm. real balance of continuity a document written if i heard it right 35 years ago still alive today yeah yeah and yet somehow navigating all the changes in expectations and how does that happen you know is there a process for that or is it just sort of an organic flow over time in terms of getting around to trying to codify or or really nail down our purpose we've only been doing that in the last year or two haven't we joe there was a time when our strapline was that we we're a rather more human law firm. That served us for a time. Then we realized that actually it didn't speak to our clients anymore. It didn't speak to our people. It was a little bit unambitious. You know, we're nice. <laughs> so it had to keep evolving. Yeah, people loved that tagline internally because it was true. You know, we all know that if you just land a purpose statement on people and it, it doesn't match what's actually happening on the ground, then that disconnect is awful. But rather more human law firm, people loved internally because it said something true about we were a bit different. We acted with one another in a different way to other law firms. We outlived it because it became something a bit juvenile or it just said we're nice people. It didn't say anything about the ambition of the work doing and the way in which we would you know get quality work from clients that's our work now is to kind of make the quality plus culture bit really ring true so we're fortunate enough that we are in areas that we've really specialized in and invested so heavily in that we're often taking talent from 
competitors who actually pay more than us and who are bigger with better sort of wages at the associate level than we would be paying. You know, I think 10 years ago, it might have been an assumption that, oh, okay, people are going there because it's a nicer place to work. You get a work-life balance. That's not why people come anymore. It's the combination of being somewhere where you can be your authentic self and you can be given a chance to do things in quite an entrepreneurial way. But it's also about the quality of work and it's about the clients and the work type. So the two have to go hand in hand. Otherwise, we wouldn't be surviving and being competitive if it was just about the culture. In terms of how we made that shift from rather more human law firm, because uh, I was coming into management around that time, what we thought was we really need to work hard and drill down. What do we actually mean by that? And that's where our ethos came from, our ethos of bravery and kindness. And we thought that's actually what we're talking about here. You know, So we want to create an environment which is agile and uh, entrepreneurial and innovative. And we want people to be prepared to take risks and actually to fail sometimes. But you can't really fairly ask people to do that if you're then going to hammer them when they get things wrong. You have to have a kind environment that says, well done for trying. The only obligation is you have to learn. You, know, you have to know why didn't that work? Or you know, how could we have changed it and done it differently? So you iterate and go again, or you abandon, you change, you pivot. doesn't matter what you're doing, but it has to be active engagement a real understanding of why you did what you did and why it did or didn't work. We see them as flip sides of the same coin. If you want people to be brave, you have to be kind. If you are kind, it will encourage people to be brave. And we thought, well, you know, that's not really our purpose. That is how we do things. That's not why we exist, effectively. So it sounds like in the last year or so, you got around to examining that question of why we exist. Is that ongoing? Well, Belden, you're being very coy about it, but you helped us. So <laughs> I'm not sure you're allowed to tell it on your podcast. It might look like advertising, but you were great. And I remember in a board meeting, you kind of saying exactly that question that I just played to you, which was, yes, but why does Lewis Silkin exist? If Lewis Silkin ceased to exist, would the world know or care? You know, you'd all go off to other law firms. You carry on doing the same stuff as you do. So why do you bother existing? And what's the answer you've got to that rather rude, but perhaps stimulating question? Well, I think we want to be a genuinely brilliant law firm. And brilliant can have many meanings. And we want to be genuinely different. We want to provide clients and people with a meaningfully, a materially different alternative to other law firms. And we want to provide a place where our clients and our people can become the best version of themselves. You know, really, really fully double down on the things that are distinctive and individualistic about the clients and about the people. That's what we want to do. You know, my experience of other firms is a long time ago, as I said, I've been here for 21 years, but I do remember that feeling and we, we still hear it from lateral hires who come to us where there is a sort of institutional character and persona and a way of doing things. And that's a very good model if you want to go that way. But actually what we wanted is the fantastic diversity to all our people. No compromise at all on the quality but, you know, real individuality so that you can build great relationships. You know, the clients can build them with you. You can build them with your clients. And you can also give incredibly distinctive, unique advice because you're free to do that. So that's the idea. Joe, anything you want to add about that? It's such a challenging question to ask a professional services law firm because, you know, I think it's easy if you're a B2C organisation or it's easier to kind of come up with, like, this is exactly what consumers miss out in the market if I don't exist. It's really quite an existential question to ask a law firm if you're not a law firm that's I don't know doing something that's say like working with prisoners on death row or something where you can really see the social purpose but 
you know, we keep coming back to this idea of we're doing things in a different way. That is our purpose. You know, it's to provide a different career path for talented people. And it's also, we think, something different, genuinely different for clients who will just be used to firms that focus on different areas to us, focus on doing things in a different way. I mean, we we focus on areas which traditionally some of the really large firms have eschewed and kind of gone, we only need to do a little bit of that because it's just not the most profitable work. If you're designing like from scratch a law firm that's the most profitable law firm, you wouldn't start with the areas that we focus on. And we love that. We love kind of going, yeah, that's why we're here. Yeah, I'd strongly endorse that. And I, I remember as a junior lawyer, you know, the partners involving us in that discussion 20 years ago, you know, what do you want to do all day? What's really important to you? You know, money is important to everyone. Let's not say we're monks who kind of live an ascetic life. We want to have a nice life. But is it the most important thing to you? And at the end of it all, when you hang up your lawyer boots, are you going to think to yourself, I smashed that. I made the most money I possibly could. Or are you going to look back at the things you did and say, wow, that was exciting. That was stimulating. That was dramatic. Huge fun. We bonded brilliantly together with the client, with our team. That's the kind of stuff that will really get your pulse racing. So the partners always made it really clear that the goal was to do the most fun stuff we could, the most interesting stuff we could, and get enough money for it. Not the most money, get enough money. <laughs> That's quite a nice distinctive thing. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of lean into your strategy? Joe, you, you kind of said, well, sort of, if we were trying to make the most money, we wouldn't have started here. But what is your strategy? How have you chosen the spaces you're in and decided where you want to be? So, you know, this is no accident. It's not kind of a strategy that's devised in the last couple of years. This is where we've been from the start of the firm. Um, so, you know, Rich has already talked about James Davis and Michael Bird came to the firm and created what was then like the, the country's first ever employment team. At that point in time, no one had a separate employment practice. It was something that the litigators did off the side of their desk if they were kind of a bit interested in this growing area of employment law. And they came up with this idea of like, let's not just do employment law as a separate department, but let's be the biggest scaled up employment operator that this country has. And that has been part of the vision from the 1980s. There's a great picture from a newspaper. I don't know which newspaper it is, Rich, but it was, they took out an advert, didn't they? Yeah, in the FT. It's hilarious. When you look back at it, you know, because it's the FT, it looks ancient. You know, it's in sepia tint. <laughs> and we've got it framed in the office and it says Lewis Silk and Employment Strength in Depth. And there's three of them. <laughs> and we have 170 employment lawyers now. But at that time, having three employment lawyers was a capricious thing to do. <laughs> Everyone's like, why would you need three of them? Do you even need one of them? So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. They already thought we want size that will have three people. Take that you know, legal world. <laughs> but it's exactly the same on the other side. We had this fantastic guy who, who's still around and popped into the office for lunch a couple of weeks ago, Roger Alexander. And, you know, in the 60s, he met a guy on a ski trip who was a, a newfangled thing called a, an advertising agent. He was like, what, what on earth is that all about? They became friends. They got into that. Roger got really, really curious about the whole thing. And he was a corporate lawyer. And he he eventually said to the corporate partners, I could just focus on advertising. It's got loads of really weird quirks to it that mean it's quite a distinctive area and we could specialize, you know, and I just, I'm really interested. So he was brave. No one was mapping the market and saying, oh, everyone's piling into advertising. It was the sort of Mad Men era when nobody knew what it was really. And the partners were really kind and said, go for it, Roger. If you can wash your face doing that, go for your life, be happy. <laughs> and then he, he built this 
team which for the last I think I don't know 40 years or something Joe I don't know how long they've been rankings but ever since there's been rankings it's been the number one team and his protégés are now the people who run that team there's this lovely sense of continuity and that is the core of the ideas you know working with advertising and marketing teams you're working with highly creative individuals you're right there on the edges of stuff that was going on as the advertising world started to develop you then needed to understand tech and you need to understand other types of creative endeavor so the skills they developed seamlessly developed into the creative economy the tech sector it's doing huge transformational projects you know working with fast growth disruptive businesses really really exciting stuff and you think about the revolution that went on in the music industry in the noughties you know destroyed their entire business model and rebuilt it again then what happened with all the streaming platforms you know it's been an amazingly dynamic area to work in and a joy for the people involved and we the employment lawyers we've managed to get involved too because we love that sort of transformational change stuff like completely ripping up the whole model and starting again and that's been great and then we got into the gig economy and the platform economy and inventing new ways of you know working relationships along with new kinds of tech and new kinds of customer engagement so there's been stuff for us all to get involved in it's been a really great experience and what we know is we just want to do more and more of that and we don't want to do stuff that bores us <laughs> it does strike me that underneath all of that there is a kind of unifying logic that says if we hire really interesting people and let them go do work that they find interesting, we're kind of going to, not always, but more often than not, put ourselves in the spaces that are going to be big in the future. We don't have to chase them. We don't have to, you know, trying to figure it out by logic probably isn't going to get you there. You'll pick the wrong spots. But if we just let people follow their passion, Often enough, we'll be in front of something that's going to be really exciting and really fun and turn out to be commercially really interesting. There's definitely a lot of truth in that. I think as long as it makes sense from a strategic alignment perspective as well. So you could stretch that, what you just said, Belden, and you could just say, well, a law firm is a series of individual sole practitioners who, as long as they've got the right ambition and hunger that you watch them succeed yes provided that i think our enduring challenge which i think we're really good at you know it's about knowing where we play and knowing what we do and also what we don't do so it wouldn't make sense to just hire those kind of interesting ambitious hungry people if it's an area which we just don't think fits that kind of ideas people differentiator that we've got yeah, I completely agree. But within those guardrails that Joe's described, maybe this isn't the right thing to say on a strategy podcast. But, you know, I often say to people, if we have a terrible strategy, but great people, it will work. <laughs> if you have a great strategy and bad people, it will not work. So the people come first. You've got to get quality. We have that all the time where you think what you need is a certain type of person. You can't find them. You find someone amazing who you realize, wow, we didn't even know that type of person was out there. And we can completely see how they could complement what we do or extend the range of services that we can offer in this particular area. So it's about knowing the field to play on. And from that point of view on strategy, you know, you have to be honest and humble about what you can do and what you can't. The areas that we're really invested in and really, really committed to, actually some of the gigantic multi-billion dollar law firms in the world, they're just not interested. And thank goodness, because if they poured their money and resources into it, you know, they'd destroy us. You can't make as much money as they can in other areas. So they strategically leave the field. So you have to work out where are we strong? Where have we got this incredibly long historic DNA? So there's a wealth of experience. Yeah, those things, they take on a momentum of their own. 
if you have amazing guys like Roger Alexander or Mike Bird and James Davis, what happens is you attract people who have similar interests. They look at them and go, wow, I would love to work with that person, do the kind of stuff they do. Then there's this momentum. You get more and more people clustered around those incredible talents and those visionary people. Then you have to encourage that. You have to just keep going and say, right, let's keep piling in. Then within that, I do strongly agree that you don't want to be too prescriptive. You know, we could sit here now and plan a five-year business plan and execute it to perfection and probably miss two or three gigantic developments that came out of nowhere <laughs> because you're saying, well, it's not in the plan. So you have to be ready to rip it up at any point and be agile about what you're doing. So dead right, you know, wherever possible, always retain the right to rip up the script and, and go in a different direction because it's even more exciting than the one you're on. <laughs> yeah. So this strategy you've articulated as people, ideas, possibilities, how did you get to that? How long did it take? Who was involved? How did you know you were there when you were there? <laughs> it's sort of before your time, Joe. Let you answer that one, Rich. But actually, I will say I was, you know, head of a team, head of one of the departments. As that was evolving, um, for me, it felt like a natural evolution. I'll sort of let you Rich explained how it came about. But for me, it didn't feel a stretch as to what we were already doing. It just, it provided a helpful unifying layer. So I don't remember there being a big kind of reveal moment where the rest of the firm went, oh God, this is a change in strategy. It just, it kind of happened. That's my take on it as a, at the time, an outsider looking in. What do you reckon, Rich? Yes, it was very much a continuity. You know, we've, we've never luckily had to do a sort of 90 degree turn in our strategy so what we had before we had landscape and peoplescape and mediascape so we had these three focuses that we thought we were really good and strong in what we realized was take the mediascape for example that just became outdated because we weren't purely a media sort of commercial practice anymore i mean you go from advertising and marketing you have these transferable skills that go into things like music, TV, film. You know, there's so much tech involved, so you get into tech. Then you're involved in innovative areas, science and pharma and all these types of things. So it wasn't the proper descriptor of what we were doing. And we realized that actually it is incredibly important to demonstrate our distinctiveness and to demonstrate uh, really genuinely what we're built for, because we're quite a unique thing. You probably wouldn't start with a blank sheet of paper and say, I want a very successful law firm. I know I have 170 employment lawyers on this side and I'll have a ton of, you know, creative economy and, and tech and science people on this side. And, you know, to hell with all the other things that people make loads of money from, forget the structured finance, you know, you wouldn't do that. But, you know, based on where we were, we thought, where can we win? Try and be the biggest and the best, you know, because there's less competition, frankly. But also, does that align with the things we love to do all day? And does it align with the things we aspire to do in future years? And so it's this ever-increasing clarity and focus and distillation. You know, you go from a, a trying to describe yourselves in kind of, well, what do we do today? And let's come up with something that just describes all of it. You, you, you have to step away from that eventually and say, no, what is it that actually is, is, is hugely, hugely distinctive? What are the things we're famous for? And so ideas and people, those two ecosystems as we think of them, that captures what we can do as a collective and what we hope we can do better than anybody else. Yeah. As you've been on that journey, what surprised you most? I think... It's not that it surprised me. I think it's just, it teaches us how you can't just land a strategy top down and say, ta-da, here's the strategy. Now this is what we live. 
you know, the success of this is because it's just a natural evolution of what we've always done. We did quite a lot of this internally as well. So actually, this does surprise me that we ended up with something that is so great, actually articulating where we want to be in our strategy. We didn't end up spending a ton of money to get that kind of pithy ideas, people, possibilities uh, thing, because it's the sort of thing that I would have probably imagined we'd have needed a bit of help to articulate. But I think because it's so much of a natural evolution of what we've always been talking about, it just evolved really naturally and it works because of that. What do you find most difficult? For me, actually, it was the hard conversations. Because again, you know, when you think about all the things we've been talking about, we've got a lot of diversity with a small d of views and opinions and thoughts, a lot of individuality. So first of all, absolutely everybody had a view on this. <laughs> so that's, that's quite hard to manage because you're dealing with lots of people who are extremely good advocates and persuaders and negotiators. And there are times when you really do feel under pressure to kind of fall back on, you know, executive decision making, right? We'll have one sweetie for everybody. It'll be a complete you know, dog's breakfast, but at least everyone can see the one thing that they contributed. And then having to really be firm and say, no, that just isn't going to fully capture what we do. And then also there are some things where not everybody feels quite as central to the strategy as everybody else. And trying to navigate that and to explain to people where they fit in, why they're valued, why they're important, how they can support it. That was a mammoth task, really, to land it, because there's no point having this great strategy if people won't actually execute, because you've got a lot of different people at different stages in their careers with different skill sets, more or less invested in those things. So that was a real mountain to climb. Yeah. What advice might you give to a business leader who is wrestling with their own organization's purpose and strategy? Well, I feel like I kind of was the beneficiary of like coming in when all the hard work had been done. So I slot into the process and help execute it. But with that mindset, what I've observed is having a clear sense of purpose and strategy has made all the difference in being able to get out to talk to the firm. So Rich and I did these series of roadshows kind of to announce our new partnership and the start of our new three-year plan of our term so we went out to all of our offices, so Belfast, Dublin, Cardiff, Oxford, Manchester, Leeds. You know, we went to all of them. The essence of what the strategy is going to be it was high on vision, high on inspiration. It was such a strong message to go out with, with a clear sense of purpose that I think, you know, my advice would be, however hard it is to do, the prize at the end of it is worth it to be able to sort of set a really clear inspirational tone to the, to the organisation. The challenge that we've had a few times, there are some partners who will say, what's the point? The purpose is to be a successful law firm. That's it. And don't get too tied up in, you know, highfalutin ideas. Just keep your feet on the ground. And remember, that's what you're here to do, managers. Go and run the business and make us some money. Yeah, that's the big challenge, I think, that probably every organization will have. If you are going to focus on this kind of thing, you're going to have some refuseniks. You're going to have some skeptics. And how do you get to those people? Because again, you know, we're a mid-sized firm, so we're about 80 partners. You know, if we have eight who don't buy it and don't go for it, it's going to seriously undermine our chances of um, succeeding. So, you know, that, that's the hard thing. And also, you know, as a commercial organization, a bit like Joe was saying at the start, you know, how purposeful can you be B2B? You know, how authentic can you be? You don't want to 
sort of make yourselves out to be some charity when you're really a commercial organization. You have to be honest about that stuff, particularly with the, the Gen Zers. You know, they're an incredible group of people if you can harness their energy. But if you come across as inauthentic, if you come across as someone who's virtue signaling and not sincere, they'll slaughter you. <laughs> you know, and, and again, you just won't get the best of that generation. So that's the tightrope you're walking if you're a type of organization like ours, saying that we're purpose-led. You know, but we are basically a law firm. Yeah. What, what haven't I asked you about that we ought to touch on that you wish I had asked you about? Yeah, that kind of aspect of the potential refuseniks and the sort of the small but vocal minority that might be like, so what about it all? You know, that is definitely, I think we feel it more acutely in partnerships than you would in sort of other organisations. That's the nature of partnership. But I think it's just, it just comes down to like planning for that and using your powers of diplomacy and persuading people that, actually for our talent that are coming through it's kind of irrelevant what some partners think if they don't think that uh you know we, we should have a purpose because actually they need to be planning for the people that are coming through really important for and you know our talent tellers consistently that this is very important that they wake up and they understand why they're at lewis Orkin and what the purpose is what are they doing that's that's additive to their lives so You've just got to really make sure that that message has come through loud and clear to the people who go, yeah, so what? Um, it's not really about that. It's about the others. Yeah, and another thought I'd have is um, just the value of repetition. You know, it, 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 actually, it actually scared me at times because our, our kind of comms team will say, no, no, genuinely, you need to go on and on and about this all the time. And I was thinking, God, people are going to get sick of this and cynical. But they, they are 100% right, and I accept, you know, thank goodness we've got these experts who know better than I do. Uh, because what you do is each time you reach another tiny subset of the organization, and it also becomes the background of everything that you're doing. To be fair, I don't think we had that many skeptics. You know, out of eight, you might have had three or four. Um, but some of those, you know, the skepticism falls away because they see it succeeding. And some of them, they just forget that it's even there because it's hiding in plain sight. It's everywhere, <laughs> you know, and then you sort of box them in. Everyone else is bought into it and everyone else is talking. So there's no real opportunity. So, uh, you know, to, 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 do, to depart from it too much. And you realize, actually, I'm just going to be the, the bore in the corner if I'm constantly questioning this. So repetition, you know, continually bringing the message home over and over and over again. Uh, even if you think to yourself, I must be boring everyone, even my mother would put up with this. <laughs> um, you know, it actually works. It is important. But the, the, the rule I've heard is just about the time that you get so bored, you cannot imagine saying it yet again. People are just beginning to hear it. <laughs> I, I think experience would bear that out. Yeah, I've only done this once. But yes, it is interesting how people take it on board as a new idea. And then you think, crikey, I've told you personally seven times about this. So I'm delighted that you're now stunned with this great idea you've, <laughs> you've taken on board. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. Well, that would be great. I'd be really happy if everyone owns it. Yeah. If everyone thinks it's their idea, that'd be superb. Because what you want is people to buy in and own it and execute. You know, that's the thing. Yeah, that, that's kind of how you know you're winning. When people start thinking of it as it's theirs. But, you know, the nice thing is if you have consulted, everybody does own it a little bit. That is the point of that, you know, really important. They can all say, yeah, no, I, I, I helped put this together. Any questions, if any, for me on any topic? 
you, you might want to cut this, but I'm just curious as to because <laughs> you, you did have a window into what we were doing. Um, yeah. You know, what would you say was the best thing we did and what was the worst thing we did? Um, to be honest, I think the best thing you did was you were willing to front into and have open conversations about some of the tough issues. Okay. There's always going to be stuff I might say, oh, it could have been different, better. Worst, I don't know. I'd struggle. Very diplomatic. <laughs> um, if it, the one thing I might point to, and I could say this is probably true of anybody, is I, I think at times you were and I think have been a little slow to act on some of the tough people decisions. And I think that's true of everybody. It's fair. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's probably fair. Yeah. And and then you, you you take this calculation, don't you? Sort of think, well, I'd rather be slightly yeah. slow to act on those things than no, precipitate. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I, Rich, yeah. absolutely. I'm not. By the way, that's not a. It's not a criticism. It's just an observation. No, I think it's well um, well made. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I you know look, I I probably say this or something like it at the end of every episode. But for me, this has been a particular pleasure having the two of you on here. Partly mm. because during the time that we were working intensively together, I. Love might be too strong a word, but I definitely came to have a very warm regard for both the firm and what you're trying to do there. I think it's it's a fantastic thing you're about. Thank you. Um, so Thank thanks you, for coming and sharing. The, the check's in the post. <laughs> <laughs> Am I sending it to you? Or you? <laughs> anyway, really been great. Thanks so much thanks, for joining Belden. us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. <laughs>